How about that? Can you hear me, Colin? Great. Thank you, guys. That was very sweet of you. Thank you for your prayers. And I get to preach this morning. I'm excited to. I'm excited to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, per usual, it's usually an announcement ahead of time, and then we'll get into the passage. Uh, just a heads up for next week. So next Sunday will be um, slightly unique. We are planning on, Lord willing, recognizing a couple men into uh, church offices. Roger Everhart as a elder in, um, for our Severance Church plant, and then Scott Elder as a benevolence deacon here. Um, so that would be part of the service is our plan currently, and also we're going to celebrate it. So we're going to have a brunch afterwards. You guys have probably been around. You know what that's like. We all eat here in the lobby, and there's delicious food, and it will be a good festive way to recognize what God has done. So just a heads up, that is coming up next week. Well, we are now in sermon number 20. Sermon number 20 in this series that we're doing is called um, Written in Stone, and we have been journeying through the books of Exodus, Leviticus, now Numbers, and uh, discovering what God's law given to Moses, what that says to us today, and also following the narrative um, that entailed there. And studying the Bible for today... I discovered new things I've never seen before, which usually happens every time, but it's amazing. It's so good, and I'm excited to share those with you, excited to share the gospel with you this morning. So the book we're currently in is called Numbers in the Bible in front of you. Um, If you're reading it in the Jewish scriptures, um, it's called Bamidbar, and Bamidbar means in the wilderness, in the wilderness, And that's because the people journey from Mount Sinai, where they received the covenant, the the Ten Commandments and more, and they journey through the wilderness um, to a place here. Here's where our passage is taking place. Um, Don't get too confused by all the numbers, just the green circle. That's where we're at. We're at the wilderness of Zin, which is near Kadesh. Wilderness is a tough place to be. Wilderness is a tough place to survive. The wilderness lacks those key things that you need to really thrive in life, like water and food and shelter, basic things like that. And we're going to see that in today's passage. God leads us through the wilderness. He led them through the wilderness. He leads us through wilderness to test us with a good heart, to grow us. He has a good intent. And oftentimes we fail at the test. We go through the wilderness and we start to quit trusting God. The pressures cave in and we start thinking God's not so good. We're not sure we have the endurance to keep going and so we complain. We distrust God. All of us here this morning are going through a wilderness of some sort in our life. Small, big, whatever category it may be. A place that feels like there's not enough to keep going. A place that's putting pressure for you to stop trusting in God. Something that's making you maybe change your mind about God and his character. Could be a circumstance you're waiting to get changed. It could be a sin struggle that you can't shake. But either way, it's leading to something of distrusting and complaining to God. 
So let me tell you here where we're going here for the morning. Wandering through life's wildernesses, we're susceptible to quit trusting God regarding our needs and our sins. The good news of the smitten rock, I'll explain that in a little bit, provides wilderness endurance through a renewed view of God's character. So how about we pray, and then I'm going to have you grab the Bible in front of you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need you. It's encouraging to be here. It's encouraging to sing together. And yet I think for many in the room, there are pressures that are weighing on us outside of this time, whether individually, whether um, in our health, in our relationships, or even at a global level. Grant today that we would see you freshly, God, that we would be amazed by you, that the view we have of you would give us the endurance to continue in the wilderness even before our need is met. I pray that you did something supernatural today through your Holy Spirit to take your word and to bring it to life to each one of us individually. Help us to see you freshly and to be amazed and to endure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to be on page 128. Love for you to grab the Bible in front of you and read along. And then we're going to unpack this episode from Numbers 20. So Numbers 20, page 128, and we're going to start in verse 2. Sounds like we're there. Here's God's word. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to deliver us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. 
These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Okay, what just happened here? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did Moses just get told he doesn't get to go into the promised land because of what we just read? Did I miss something? I'm guessing maybe I'm not alone in this initial impression reading the passage. Does God's judgment of Moses seem harsh, perhaps? Does it seem like a disproportionately severe consequence for a minor offense, if maybe any offense at all? Why doesn't Moses get to enter the promised land on account of this? Are we to conclude that we ought to walk on eggshells around God, lest something severe happen to us? Is this event a mischaracterization of God's character? Lots of questions. To answer these questions, let's first recall the people's actions in its greater context, and then we're going to look at God's instruction and finally clarify what Moses' error truly was. So, let's look at the context here. What does it say? There was no water for the people, and they quarreled against Moses. That's the word Meribah, quarreled. They, Meribah, they quarreled against Moses because they didn't have water. And before you judge them, consider how not nice of a person you would be if you were in that picture I had before and you had spent a long time without water and you were in a group of two million people. What's the longest you've ever gone without water? A few hours, a day? I haven't gone that long. But also recall that this is not the first time that people have complained about a lack of water. You might recall an earlier sermon given by Perry, the Grumbleites, where he talked about this. So we're going to review and get a little context. You might remember that in kindness, God had tested his people various times in the wilderness. Let's look at a map here. This is the traditional route people believe that um, the uh, Israelites took getting from Egypt to the promised land. Egypt on the left the entrance to the promised land up at the top right. This would be the traditional route. And so immediately after all those miraculous plagues in Egypt, the people leave Egypt there on the left. Two million people crowded. And they arrive at the circled place there, Mara, which means bitter. And they were three days after all the miraculous things, praising God for salvation, and there's no water. And so there at Mara, the place of bitter water, God turns the bitter water sweet, and he provides for them. But it doesn't take long for the exact same thing to happen again. They travel through the wilderness to the next place, Elam, and there, after more complaining, God provides for them with a place with 70 palms and 12 springs of water in the wilderness. But that's not it. It's not the only time this has happened yet another time. They get close to Mount Sinai down here, close to two, at Rephidim, and there they have another encounter of needing water. Let's see what they do. Let's remind ourselves. This is rewinding backwards to Exodus 17. I'll have it on the screen. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. 
And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The people aren't just mildly upset. They are ready to stone Moses, to kill him on account of bringing them to this place. And then Moses gets this instruction from the Lord. Check it out. He said to him, take in your hand the staff. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Let's look at a couple details here. Maybe first of all, the phrase, I will stand before you. Something that we miss in English, but the texture that shows up in the Hebrew is that this is um, a court scene. The language conveys that of an accusation being brought against someone, and in this case, the accusers are the people, and the accused is God himself. And the language ought to be, in terms of standing before, that the one who is being charged should be standing before the greater one, the one who is making the charge. But in this case, God is standing before them. He's in the place of accusation. Furthermore, something you might not notice is it says that he was standing, that he would be there on the rock. It literally means on the rock, before the rock, in front of the rock, meaning that God's presence would be before them at the rock. I don't know if he manifested itself physically in the form of a cloud or not, but he was associating himself personally with the rock. Okay, another detail. We've got the staff. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. This is Moses' staff, by the way. Um, And then he tells him with that very same staff to strike the rock. Let's remember the first time that God mentions this to understand the significance of the staff. This is in Exodus 7. This would be, we generally call them plagues, but not all of them are called plagues in the Hebrew. But nonetheless, this is the first one. And God's command was that Moses would take the staff, the staff that had turned into a serpent, and he was to strike the Nile, and it was to turn to blood. In this case, God was showing that the staff of Moses was an instrument of divine justice. Let me show you how. When it says that he struck, this is the word, Hebrew, nacha, and it means to strike in judgment, or an old King James word would be to smite, which is kind of fun to say. So he nachad. The Nile, he brought God's divine justice through the staff, and this is, in fact, the very same word that shows up in our passage that we're reading, Exodus 17. And so the conclusion, the staff is an instrument of divine judgment, all right? Divine judgment. Let's see where we're at now. Okay, so he tells him the same staff he used to strike the Nile, now he is to strike the rock. So God's on trial before the people. He identifies with the rock at the moment. He is struck once with the rod of divine judgment, 
and their waters flow to satisfy the thirsty people. And Moses calls this place Meribah. Meribah, which means quarreling, because there the people quarreled toward Moses, but it was really at God. And so if you were to look on a map, you could say that Meribah is right there. It's at Rephidim. Those are the waters of Meribah, the waters of quarreling. Let's continue on the journey. Let's see what happened next for context. Remember, we're trying to get context for Numbers 20. What happens next? Okay, the people move to Sinai. This takes us from Exodus 19 through Numbers 10. They camp there for somewhere in the neighborhood of a year. And there God gave his covenant to the people and um, gave the law through which they were to experience his covenant. And when he appeared, he appeared in the flame of fire and he said, will you keep this covenant? I'm paraphrasing. And they all looked, they said, yes, we will do it. Whatever you say, we will obey. We will keep this covenant. And unfortunately, it doesn't take long at all before the people show they are rather rebellious. They have a stiff neck. They're not inclined to follow God. They're inclined to be idolatrous. And right afterwards, they make an idol while Moses is gone. And it's just the first really of many times where they rebel against God. God is surprisingly gracious, and Moses appears before God as a mediator figure, not just once, but multiple times throughout these times, asking on behalf of the people that God would spare them and that he would keep them and not destroy them for the sake of his glory among all the nations. And so surprisingly, God's presence remains with the people. He doesn't let them go without him. And they continue on from Sinai and begin their journey. They head kind of north or northeast from there. And they go through various um, places of wilderness. And while they're going, we see they continue to rebel. In Numbers, there are seven different episodes of complaints or seven different rebellions. Let me show them to you here. Yeah, they're on their way to Kadesh. That's where we're going to end up. But here's what it looks like. Seven different complaint episodes. We have a time where they complaint at Tabra and fire broke out from God because of their complaining. They're complaining they need some more sustenance. They're craving some meat. And they say, why did we leave Egypt? That's the second one. The third one, there's a complaint against Moses from his very siblings. God vindicates Moses. And then the center of it all, the, there's a complaint about the promised land. We can't go and take it. There are giants in the land. And then after that, they rebel against him. He says, okay, you can't go in. They're like, no, we changed our minds. We want to go. Nope, that's the next complaint. And then next, this would have been uh, last week. This was Aaron's message. The complaint against Moses and Aaron by Korah, a rebellion against the leadership Isn't everyone holy? Aren't we all the same? And there we saw the holiness of God revealed as Korah and his followers were then swallowed up by the earth. That leads us to our passage today. Another sustenance complaint at Meribah. Why did we leave Egypt? And the next one, which I'm not going to get time for today, is one you might know. It's when they're uh, complaining again and fiery serpents come and the only way they're saved is if Moses lifts up a bronze serpent and everyone who looks to the serpent is saved. 
Bible authors, Hebrew authors, they really nerd out on some numbers and some structure. So Bible authors love the number seven. The number seven is the number of covenant. It's the number of completeness. And so here you've got seven complaints, perhaps showing the utter completeness of complaint and um, brokenness in this people. But also the Hebrew authors love to use a certain form. It's like a mirrored image. It's called a chiasm where they do like an A, B, C, D, C, B, A. Did you see the connections between the colors? Try to make it really clear. And usually the center one is the hinge point or it's the surprise. It's something that unlocks it all. And so here, the center of it all, we've got their they're traveling to the promised land, the edge of it, and their failure to enter the promised land. And then the ones after it are after not going to the promised land and wandering through the wilderness. So that's just for fun, and I thought it'd be cool for you to see that um, with those correlating events. But in each one of these, I want to show this to you so that you see just how much the people struggled how much they complained. It wasn't just once, it wasn't just twice, it was exhaustively. And I want you to consider Moses, the humble man that he was, mediating for them time and time again, not giving up on them, continuing to to represent them. But during the course of these stories, Moses is showing signs like he is gonna crack, like he's got a twitch in his eye, because these people are getting on his nerves. He's a kind of on-edge character, even though he's a beautiful, humble representative as well. And so in some of these cases, Moses says, God, I don't want to keep doing this. This wasn't my idea. This was your idea. These are your people, and yet you're asking me to carry them like they're my children, two million of them. I can't do this. I'm done. And so I want you to consider the building up effect this is having on Moses after so many complaints and so many times he's mediated for them, he's starting to crack a little. So all that, we've gotten our context, finally to get back to our passage, here's where we're at. We are at Kadesh. Kadesh means holy. And we're at the wilderness. There's no water for the people. They've quarreled against Moses deja vu because of it. Now let's examine God's instruction to Moses. Let's look at this in depth so we can understand what's going on here, all right? Here it is, plain and simple. God said to Moses, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them drink to the congregation. So this seems like a very simple process. There are two steps. I've broken it down so everyone can understand. Step number one, take your staff. Step number two, speak to the rock. Pretty simple. Seems vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Yes, we just went over this. Oh yeah, this is what God said before for reference. Take, this is what he said at the waters of Meribah at Rephidim. God said to Moses previously, take in your hand the staff, check, with which you struck the Nile and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out and the people shall drink. A very simple process, two steps. One, bring your staff. Step number two, strike the rock. Okay, 
Now you see with crystal clarity the contrast that the Holy Spirit intended when the author wrote this book. Because these stories are not there by accident. They're intentionally similar so that we would see something God intended for us to see. Now let's clarify Moses' error. What did he do wrong? What's the big deal? Okay, here we are, Numbers 20, verse 9. Moses took the staff before the Lord as he commanded him. Step number one, he did it. Check. Obey. Okay, we're halfway there. Now, step number two. Here's the rest of the verse. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, remember, he's on edge. Picture the like, kind of like, like his eyes like this. He's, he's had enough. He's angry. Okay, picture that. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank. Because of this moment right here, Moses doesn't lead them into the promised land. He sees it from afar on the top of Mount Nebo as he looks ahead and before God takes him away and he passes away. Why doesn't Moses enter the promised land because of this moment right now? Is God's judgment of Moses harsh? Is it a disproportionately severe consequence for a minor offense? Is this misrepresentative of God's character? And so to answer that, let me give you my summary of Moses' sin. We're going to look in Numbers 20, Numbers 27, and we're also going to look at a psalm and put it all together as a little mosaic here, all right? So first of all, the verse we just read, it said this, Moses doesn't enter because God says this, you did not believe in me. Moses was not believing in Yahweh in this moment in some way. Numbers 27 is when he's um, speaking with Aaron and Moses about not going into the promised land and how Joshua is going to take the place of Moses. And he says this, you rebelled against my word. Huh, a little ironic. Moses is calling them rebels. Who's the real rebel? Moses, the covenant representative. Yikes. Okay. You rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy. So Moses doesn't believe in Yahweh. He rebels against him. And finally, Psalm 106, one of various psalms that recounts the journey through the wilderness, says this. They, meaning the people at Meribah, um, the, they angered Moses at the waters of Meribah. It went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. To speak rashly, uh, you know, click, get that a little bigger, it means to speak angrily or to speak thoughtlessly. So what did Moses do wrong in summary? He disbelieved the Lord, Yahweh. Moses didn't trust God's word that speaking to the rock would provide water. That was his command. He didn't do that. He didn't believe God for that. And furthermore, he rebelled against his word. Instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock. Not once, but twice. And furthermore, he spoke rash words. He said self-centered words. 
Shall we bring water out for you? Bringing the focus to him and Aaron as opposed to Yahweh, the provider of their needs. And furthermore, like I said before, calling them rebels, which they were. And yet he was being the rebel in this instant, ironically. So is Moses' punishment misrepresentative of God's character? No. On the contrary, Moses misrepresented God in this moment. And God upheld his holy character at Meribah. How did he do that? God upheld his character by not allowing Moses to enter the promised land. He showed himself holy through responding to Moses' rebellion. Remember these words, you didn't uphold me as holy, but nonetheless, through this moment, through the waters of Mirabah, by the way, this is the second Mirabah place, right? This is at, at Kadesh instead of Rephidim. There at Kadesh, which means holy, God revealed himself as holy. So how did God uphold his character, his holiness at the waters of Mirabah? Let me give you a few different ways he did and how it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first is he showed himself holy by contrasting unholy Moses with holy Jesus. Moses had a special role. He was the covenant representative for the people. He had a higher standard than the rest, you could say. And so he didn't represent what God intended to the people. And if God was holy, he would have to respond justly, not only to the people's rebellion to enter the promised land, he responded in a holy way to that, not only to Korah's rebellion, God responded in a holy way to that, but even Moses, even special Moses, was not exempt from that. God must respond in a holy way to Moses himself as well. Moses, the most distinguished prophet of the Old Testament, is not exempt. The people can only enter the promised land on account of a covenant representative who obeyed God every, his every command, who obeyed him perfectly, who lived in a holy way. And Moses was great in one sense, but he was got not good enough. He was not good enough to lead the people into the promised land. You remember that God granted that Moses would have a successor. It was the one who spent time with him in God's presence. His name was Yehoshua. Yehoshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. And though Joshua was great in one sense, he he wasn't good enough because he was foreshadowing another person with his, name, his same name, Yehoshua of Nazareth, Jesus Messiah. He, they shared the same name. And Jesus was the perfect covenant representative in every way. Not once did he rebel against the command of the Lord. Not once did he treat him as unholy. Not once was he rash with his words. Whereas Moses failed to lead the people into the land of Canaan, Jesus succeeds in leading us into the eternal promised land, our heavenly home where we'll join him one day. Had God allowed Moses to enter the promised land after this incident, he would not have showed himself to be holy. 
he would have wrongly revealed an unholy salvation, one that could be obtained through a sinner instead of one who's righteous. How did God show himself to be holy at Kadesh? He also did it through this, by foreshadowing his punishment in our place. Recall the first Meribah. Moses stood, uh, God stood before Moses in the place of the accused. Moses had his staff in his hand, the instrument of divine justice. And God stood before the rock. He associated himself with the rock. And with one strike, Moses struck the rock. He struck God himself. Not for his sin was God smitten, but he was smitten for the sin of the people. And so God, the smitten rock, foreshadows what Jesus Messiah would do for us. You guys know these verses from Isaiah 53, speaking in advance about Jesus Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Through one moment, through one punishment of Messiah Jesus, we find our healing. I like how this um, 20th century pastor and author summarized this with this a little bit longer quote. Follow along with me, if you will. It's a pastor named Edmund Clowney. The God who is the rock of Israel is the Savior, the God of mercy who bears his own judgment for the sin of his people. The people had cried in in the accusation of unbelief, is the Lord among us or not? Yes, the Lord was among them, among them in a way they could not imagine. There he stood upon the rock, not only among them, but in their place, bearing their condemnation. Before God gave his covenant at Sinai, he pledged his presence at Calvary. But not only does this, did God reveal himself as holy through the waters of Mirabah in this way, but also in this, and that he clarified a sufficient one-time sacrifice. At Mirabah, this was not, the second Mirabah, this was not a judgment moment. The first Mirabah was the judgment moment. It was the one time that God was to be judged for his people, once and no more. But this time, God had a different plan. God's plan was only to sacrifice himself once, very importantly, as we see in the book of Hebrews, where it says that Christ has entered into heaven itself not to offer himself repeatedly, As the high priest, he's talking about the Levites, enter the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all. At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so God was clarifying a one-time sacrifice He was also clarifying the means of this one-time sacrifice. The first time the forgiveness was obtained through the striking of God himself, his punishment, 
But after that, what's, how's, how's, uh, how do we obtain what we need? It's through speaking through the rock. For us today, we do not continually need a new sacrifice of Jesus. His one sacrifice was sufficient for all time, for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And now, we just speak to the rock. You come to Jesus. You confess to him like we did in communion earlier. And we confess that we're sinners and we confess that he's a sufficient savior. And that's all we need for the means of forgiveness. And so had God allowed Moses to enter the promised land, he wouldn't have upheld himself in his salvation as holy. He would have been creating a picture of multiple sacrifices ongoing to be saved by God. He would have created a picture of not speaking to the rock, but continuing to strike it. But God upheld himself as holy. Finally, one more way God did this. He pictured his abundant and timely provision. He upheld his holiness by doing this. Moses struck the rock. He wasn't supposed to do that. He struck it twice. God didn't tell him to do it. It was done in anger. It was done in sin. And despite all the complaining of the people, despite Moses' sin, God still provides water. That kind of surprised me. I thought, surely water's not going to come out because they did the wrong thing. No. God's revealing his gracious character that he would still meet our needs despite our ongoing struggles, our ongoing distrust of him, our ongoing sin. He still longs to be gracious to us. And so had God allowed Moses to enter the promised land following this event, he would not have been holy. He would have been wrongly revealing a salvation in which God remains angry at sinners even after he's been punished. So full circle. Are we to conclude that we ought to walk on eggshells around God because one small mistake and we're out? No. No. Rather the opposite. God's gracious heart amazes us. We sin frequently. We distrust him often. We complain often. And yet he was the rock that was smitten. He was struck for us. He was perished. He punished in our place. Is this consequence misrepresentative of God's character? After all that Moses went through, not to let him into the promised land? No. God upheld his holiness as well as a holy salvation by withholding the promised land from Moses. And yet God was gracious to Moses as well. God was gracious to Moses. Later on, Moses does indeed enter the promised land. We see it in the Gospels. At the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is revealed in glory, and who's there talking with him? Moses and Elijah. And so what Moses saw from afar on top of Mount Nebo, he did enter. He did get to enter that literal Canaan promised land. But even in a greater sense, Moses will enter the greater promised land, which is open to all of us who will believe on Jesus, who will trust in him, who will let him be smitten instead of us, where one day we'll sit down and we will feast in the kingdom of God. People will come from east and west, and perhaps you will be sitting next to Moses 
and you'll get to talk with him as we enjoy Jesus, our holy God, the rock who is smitten for us. Band, you can come on back up here. The wilderness is a rough place to be, isn't it? The wilderness threatens our ability to press on in life. The needs press on us to distrust God, to continue sinning, to complain. But this good news we've covered today corrects our wrong judgment of God's character. And instead of him being in the wrong, we realize he's shockingly more amazing than we ever realized. So wilderness wanderers, sufferers, God sees your need. He knows what you're facing. He knows what you need. And he cares so deeply for you. He isn't unholy. He's an unmatched God of goodness. He has a plan to meet your need. He has the perfect time to meet your need. Whether it be tomorrow, whether it be next year, or whether it be in eternity. Trust him in the wilderness. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you. You are far greater than we realize. I pray that your word would open up our eyes, that we would respond to your word and be more in love with you than we were when we came into this room. Thank you for standing in our place, the rock who is smitten instead of us. In Jesus' name, amen.